Airbus with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the Robots Podcast. I am Jana and in this episode we're exploring what's behind the Airbus Shop Floor Challenge, due to be held live at the IEEE 2016 International Conference on Robotics and Automation, ICRA, this May in Stockholm. ICRA is an event of huge significance for the robotics community and every year we report some exciting news from this conference. This year, Airbus has invited robotics teams from around the world to create innovative robotic solutions for a real-life manufacturing challenge and to then compete live at ICRA. Our interviewer, Andrew Vaziri, spoke to Curtis Carson, Head of Research and Technology in Industrial Strategy and Systems at Airbus, about the need for a new generation of industrial robots for aircraft manufacturing and about the shop floor challenge at the upcoming ICRA. Hello, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi, thanks Thanks for having me. Could you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Curtis Carson. I'm currently uh, responsible for the research and technology uh, domain on the industrial side, so the industrial system side with Airbus in Toulouse, France. Uh, my role today is encompassing basically everything you can imagine around the production of uh, a commercial aircraft, from uh, jigs, machinery, equipment, to, to robotics, automation, through to uh, uh, new uh, innovative techniques with regards to uh, uh, enhancing and optimizing the way of working uh, through uh, IoT and connected objects. IoT? In terms of Internet of Things, connectedness, uh, uh, bridging multiple uh, sensors and systems uh, around our worker or around our uh, our automation on our shop floor. For people who aren't familiar with Airbus, could you describe your, your products? I would say the easiest way to describe our products is I would imagine in most people in society today travel travel somewhere and uh, there is a very high likelihood if they're making any type of air travel they're traveling on one of our Airbus products. Um, we develop commercial aircraft from uh, a smaller range uh, which we call our single aisle aircraft, uh, the A320, all the way through to uh, the world's largest passenger aircraft with the A380. What are the challenges in manufacturing aircraft? I would say some of our challenges today is, is that it might be hard to imagine from an outside perspective, but some of our craft uh, have been developed uh, years ago, and we've been producing them for many, many years, uh, through to uh, new and innovative products like our A350, which has just come to uh, to our, customer, our first customers. Um, and the industrial system that we built behind to produce all of this is quite large because the aircraft are large, right? Um, but also quite expansive in terms of uh, footprint and the age and the diversity in this industrial system is quite significant. It's not we're building a factory every year. We're not designing new aircraft every year. So this 
makes it quite challenging to find ways to change and or innovate uh, in this space. You said that the lifetime could be quite significant. What is the, you know, if you had to give an average of the time that, that one aircraft design might be in production? An aircraft design, uh, it's quite typical for an aircraft design to be in production for 20, 30 years or more. So the time frames are, are very, very large and very long. And the more successful the program, the longer the production can run. And currently, how many aircraft does Airbus produce in, in a year? So in a year, uh, well, our last figures, and I think it's just come out in uh, the current press releases, we had over, I think it was over 630 plus uh, aircraft produced uh, last year. Um, which might seem like a small number versus an automotive domain where you're producing thousands and thousands of cars, but uh, it's some of the largest uh, quantities of aircraft, uh, commercial aircraft uh, ever produced uh, in a given period or in a given year. So how many aircraft are currently in the backlog to be purchased from Airbus? I believe today, without being exactly quoted on that, I think it's close to 7,000 aircraft in backlog uh, for a production time frame that spans over, uh, if you take the numbers per year, uh, it's over quite a number of years this backlog is uh, applicable. To, to address the, the large number of aircraft that are currently in the backlog, what are some of the initiatives that Airbus is undertaking to innovate in its manufacturing processes? So some of the areas we're looking to innovate is uh, one part for sure how, uh, and it might be difficult to see without looking at really what's inside a production system, but uh, uh, there is a lot of people with regards to the assembly process in the building of aircraft that are part of that building process, along with uh, either automation uh, towards assisting the people or full-blown robotics and automation that we use to uh, uh, assemble and or fabricate parts of the aircraft. So we're looking for across many different facets of innovation from uh, smart tools that know uh, where they are in the aircraft uh, to uh, autonomous uh, robotic systems that can manage and m move themselves around uh, in our production environment through to innovative uh, technologies like 3D printing and what can it bring to production efficiency and performance in the building of our aircraft. Um, we're looking across a very, very large spectrum of uh, technologies with the, with the background to see how we can effectively boost our, uh, our productivity and our performance in building uh, our aircraft. What robotics initiatives has Airbus undertaken in the past? So in the area of robotics, uh, to, to put it uh, for sure, we're, we're using industrial robots and systems that you may see uh, in an, in, if you were in an automotive environment for, for specific tasks, uh, whether it's uh, drilling uh, holes on a panel or, or uh, a skin structure for the aircraft to assemble frames to that. Um, we have big machines that we use today for uh, building uh, uh, large, very, very large-scale composite parts uh, up to the size of, uh, of uh, wings. Um, and in there, uh, we have a number of different automated systems that we use. 
Um, so these these are the typical industrial automations that we're applying. And with those typical industrial automations, we can typically target a what's probably a small percentage of the, the production activities due to the large quantity of parts that you can have in an aircraft and the large diversity of the types of parts. So that's what exists and what we're looking towards is where is the swing where we can uh, have much more lightweight robotic systems, uh, much more uh, flexible and agile systems that can move in and around our structures versus having to design uh, from the ground up a fixed and rigid system that uh, you have a robot put within. Um, might be difficult to realize, but if you realize the size and scale of the aircraft, it's not something that's readily uh, set up to bring the product to the robot for the robot to do the work and then move the product along. We have to be much more mobile and much more uh, flexible in our uh, building process. I understand Airbus is sponsoring this year's challenge at the International Conference on Robotics and Automation. Can you tell us about that? The competition that we're proposing for this year is linked towards drilling. And uh, why would we target something like drilling? Um, I guess the simple answer to that would be is if you take a production year in Airbus in assembling the aircraft that I mentioned earlier, uh, we're drilling over 120 million holes per year. And of those 120 million holes, uh, I would say we're only able to uh, automate a very small percentage of that in terms of uh, a production tasks. So there's a very, very high level of manual drilling that we do um, in the production of our aircraft today. So the drilling is an interesting aspect because if we can combine what I said earlier with a lightweight and mobile robotic system and we're able to couple that with lightweight tools uh, for, in this example, drilling as we have millions of holes to do, then we are having an opportunity to be in a new uh, envelope of potential with regards to how we could implement an automated system without massively changing our infrastructure or our production lines to accommodate such a system. Because I, I, I mean, I guess the way to think about it is, is a lot of these holes are drilled today by people. Um, so it's not that uh, a large industrial robot wouldn't work for doing that, but the robot's not very mobile. And if you make the robot mobile, well, it's very heavy also. So. If you're drilling holes inside an aircraft uh, structure, uh, barrel, uh, this robot, without, not without some monumental feats in terms of uh, the jigs and the structures to do it, it becomes very, very difficult to put it inside without re rebuilding your industrial infrastructure. And this is what we're really interested to see is what can we do pushing the boundaries of the robotics capabilities today in this lightweight modular mobile mode to tackle this large volume of activities. And drilling is just the starting point because if we can do it with drilling, then we can look quickly to uh, uh, other aspects of uh, the production operations. In the competition itself, what are you asking teams to do? So what we set up is a quite 
it might look like it's very simple, but then the technical complexities come behind. If we have a, a template, uh, a metal template, we're asking them to produce uh, a specific uh, drilling pattern. And not only in this drilling pattern are we asking them to produce uh, uh, an automated system with uh, bounding frame or restrictions with regards to size, mass, um, uh, points for modularity. Um, then we're looking at how quickly they can manipulate such a system uh, towards the task. So if I have a pattern of holes to drill, how fast can they drill them? What's the level of quality? Because uh, we're also very, very interested not to have high speed but low quality. We need high precision. And then if we adjust the environment and the positions of these templates, how can they master their robotic system to accommodate these different positions that would simulate the complexities of the geometry and the environment that we're drilling on. Because I think the difference for us is, is that the activities we're looking for when we look for a robotic system, it's not we're doing one, one task in a repeated mode over and over again in one position. Our types of automation that we need, especially when it comes to drilling is, we have a high volume of repeated drilling tasks, but over a very wide range of different positions. I understand that the robots are to be modular in their end effectors and weigh less than 100 kilograms. And I think you've mentioned the reasons for both of those. Uh, but I did want to ask, why are you asking people to provide open source software uh, to actually control these robots? For us, I, I would say the simple approach is there is that um, in, in such a production context that we have today, um, and what you see it in a number of, of industries around, the, the power of such an approach is this allows us to then look at uh, trying to get the best of the best so if it, you, you mentioned end effector. So instead of thinking about a closed, complete system that we would go buy, and maybe the company that we're buying from is very, very advanced in their modular robotic arm system, but they don't develop end effectors. So to today, the standard approach in most industries is we would go buy to a supplier a package. And this is not that it doesn't work. It can work. But... What happens when a better end effector comes along or we have uh, another company that's able to do end effectors much better than the company that is integrating the robot and end effector of the first system? Well, it then becomes difficult and complicated to figure out how to benefit from such an innovative change uh, on the current system that you have. And we see the same thing in terms of the, the approach, in terms of the software, the control, the algorithms, uh, whatever goes inside. We're looking to have that in a way that what you have to imagine also is, is we have a huge IT infrastructure on our side um, across many different aspects of the production life cycle. And this is another level of complexity. When it's closed, we're then also in a mode where we develop each time we have a new system or a solution, we have to develop a very specific interface for, for such a solution. So there's a number of different reasons, but I would say the first and foremost is we want to be able to capture the best capability from the best of the best 
in the world, wherever they are, for what they're good at. And it's not very common to find somebody that's good at every single aspect being the top of the top uh, on all those aspects. So it sounds like a large part of this is to form partnerships. Are you looking more so towards academia or industry or a mix of both? I would say if if we're really good at it, it will be both. I mean, what you typically, sometimes you can really, really discover very innovative things coming out of industry, but at the same time, you can discover very, very interesting and innovative things coming out of academia. And I don't think that's by surprise. Academia and industry are linked in a number of different uh, ways and, and means. And a lot of the the new businesses that you see in today's startup world, uh, a lot of them are starting from academia. So what we're looking for there is, well, how can we help stimulate towards academia and or the outside world? Where are our challenges and what are we looking for to resolve and uh, help in a way that makes it feasible and possible? And this is also another good reason for the open approach the more open we are in the accessibility to the outside world, whether academia or businesses, the more opportunity and the more people could potentially propose us ideas maybe that we didn't even think of in resolving our, our, our issues or our problems. Um, but it, it creates also a level or playing field for uh, the small startup to be just as powerful and effective at proposing something versus the big business uh, and industry we're used to working with today. It creates more opportunity. In general, beyond just the drilling task that's been selected for this competition, uh, what are some places where you might see innovation being needed or uh, a new approach beyond just making something that's more practical, more practical and more useful in an industrial setting, but a whole new capability entirely? Um, I guess it depends on what you frame towards a whole new capability. Um, I would say what we look for today um, is predominantly driven by what we've already designed and what we're already producing. So the aspect that we're not deeply looking at, at least from this type of competition, is Okay, so we're talking about optimizing our current state of our product based upon how it was designed. The design may have been a number of years ago, may have been five years ago. Um, what could be an aspect beyond that is, well, how do you combine those such new capabilities with new products and or materials or techniques and you use the capabilities very deeply in the design of the product that you're doing, and you optimize both at the same time. As you think about your current production process, what are some examples of other low-hanging fruit processes that, that could be adapted to use these technologies we've discussed? So, for sure, I mean, the minute we talk about drilling, the next thing we talk about is fastening, right? I mean, so we have uh, millions of fasteners that we're placing. We do a lot of uh, surface treatment or sealing, so applying sealants uh, at joints. Um, painting. Painting uh, requires uh, a very, very high demand in terms of manual effort and activity, 
if you're doing painting, uh, you then have sanding and abrasion um, uh, processes. Um, you have, due to the size and the structure, you have confined spaces, you have uh, restricted access spaces, so you have non, a number of non-ergonomic conditions uh, that the, the workers work in today. So this is a whole domain and area of potential, I would say when we talk about robotics, uh, robotics, uh, especially lightweight or the next, uh, the new generations of robotics where you see these lightweight and modular and, and uh, uh, adaptable types of systems. These areas, uh, there, we have a, a huge playing field for such things uh, in terms of opportunity. How would you see the robots and the people interacting as they assemble an aircraft? So the approach we've we've been really focused on is is that we don't believe that uh, at least today that you would see uh, a factory full of robots and that's it. This is not what we're looking at. We're looking at there will be a worker uh, robot collaboration. So we really start from our 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 worker, the, the person that's doing the work, how can we enable him to be more effective and better and more efficient in his day-to-day -day job? Um, so it's like a partner or the, the very difficult and non-human friendly tasks we can, we can pass to the robot. We can uh, ease the non-ergonomic conditions. We can uh, reduce the repetitive and straining activities from the workers. So it, it's a combination. It's a, it's a collaboration and it's in a collaborative way. We, we know that the robotic systems, as they do evolve, uh, they'll be able to do a little bit more and then maybe a little bit more. But at the same time, what I mentioned at the beginning, it's not just about a robot with a worker. It's also about how we can use the, the new connectivity of, of uh, Internet of Things and connected objects and uh, advanced communication to enable the worker to be more efficient to have the right information uh, uh, with him uh, in a more dynamic way, uh, whether it's through glasses uh, like uh, Google Glass or wearable computing, uh, sensors in the manual drillers that allow them to understand uh, what the quality of the hole they drilled is. So these, these types of automated systems that allow a more closed-loop feedback process for, for the operator to do the job uh, the best he can. Could you give us uh, a little story or an illustration of what you imagine a worker in, in this future factory might do on a daily basis that would utilize these technologies, the Internet of Things, and the, the general ability to have more information? Well, I would say the easiest way to give a little story on that is just to give you a little glimpse of what we're, we're preparing today. Uh, we have uh, tests uh, in preparation for uh, one of our production environments where we will have electronic, electronically controlled uh, what we would call smart tools, um, whether it be a, a torquing wrench for, for finishing the fastener or a manual drilling pistol for uh, making the hole uh, with wearable devices um, that we will equip to three stations or more in one of our production lines to allow them to 
experience this uh, what tomorrow could look like. So when we talk about tomorrow, uh, the reason I like to focus in this way is tomorrow is not five years from now. It's uh, we have the potential to incrementally put something like that in place today. And uh, what we're preparing and doing now is the first production trials to see how that would be implemented into the day-to-day -day business for uh, for our workers. What do you see as the timeline being? What if tomorrow is is the system you've just described? What is five years from now? Ten years from now? Thirty years from now? I would say the ten, the thirty. Uh, I don't know if I'm. Uh, <laughs> it's a difficult one for me to to project uh, myself that far forward. But five years from now, um, I don't think it's a far stretch to imagine that such connected objects and such types of automation would be a prevalent common thing you would see uh, in any one of our production facilities and be common in that uh, the the tools that you might see today or are them working from paper or drawings uh, you wouldn't see so i imagine you'd see a much cleaner environment you'd see uh, uh, a much more what we consider a high-tech environment in terms of the, the tools, the equipment, the digital displays, uh, the progress tracking, the, um, the, the interfaces that they're using um, to prepare their job, uh, the flow of parts uh, to the job that they're doing. I would imagine it's, it's, it's hard to, to describe it in words. I mean, unless you've really visualized and seen what a production facility looks like today, um, but I would imagine the proliferation of such devices, um, it's not on a, it's not on a linear scale. I would say you would see it, I would say you would see it much more in an exponential implementation and growth. And this is also one of the good reasons to consider the open approach in terms of platform, because this means, uh, we must have a way to, if we want it to be fast, uh, it has to be designed in a way that, uh, uh, we can allow this evolution to happen easily and quickly for the robotic systems or for the connected uh, objects and digital thread that we would use uh, with our workers. In order to keep pace with that exponential rate of improvement, uh, how serious is Airbus in, in investing in these opportunities? What would you guess would be the uh, activity in the next few years? Uh, I mean, uh, we're very serious about it. I mean, um, the challenge is just a little glimpse of of of, of this into uh, why we are so uh, uh, motivated in such a domain. The challenge is 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 a real. It's a real challenge. It's a real problem that we face today. It's not something that's just made up to make a contest for the. For the ICRA event, it's a it's a real potential application for our shop floor, and when it comes to the digitization and the production efficiency and connectedness, we're very serious about it. And we have many initiatives running. I mean, I can't. It's not possible to go into all of them. I suppose on an economic scale, people might be interested. How much has been spent, or is or is planned to be spent? As they, as as perhaps professors or companies look to the future and, and think about uh, possibly partnering with Airbus, I don't know if I can really put a figure to it, but uh, 
I would say the, the best way, whether it's professors and or academia and or, or industry or businesses, um, the easiest way to see how um, committed we are to it is, is to open up a dialogue. Ask us. Ask us in your domain or area. It really depends then on the value that we can potentially get or bring from it. We have significant portfolios of research and development activities that run on many different platforms with cooperation to universities, with cooperation to technology centers, uh, uh, businesses outside. Um, so unless you really know the, the aerospace business, it's, uh, it's not something we're sitting there and everything is happening in-house. Um, there already is a significant amount of activity happening outside. The figures, I can't really quote to the figures, uh, to, be, to be honest. So. ICRA is 15th through the 21st of May in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, do you know when you'll be accepting submissions to be part of this competition? Yeah, so our submission window for for ICRA is is open today, and it's uh, open through till uh, March fifteenth when we will close uh, the submission uh, process. For these teams, what kind of support might be available from the competition? So the types of support we're offering we're we're offering uh, in certain circumstances uh, the possibility to to any registered team to apply for various types of support. Uh, whether it be maybe potential help with travel, maybe potential help with equipment, uh, materials, tools. And it really depends. It depends on the potential and the idea that uh, the teams are coming forward, especially the registered ones. And uh, um, we judge it on a case-by-case basis uh, in a dialogue with uh, the teams who register. So there is a potential, I guess the message is, there is a potential to get support um, but it requires uh, for sure registering and then talking a little bit with us. Where can people find the registration forms and more information about the event? So they can either go to directly to the ICRA uh, homepage, the ICRA 2016 homepage, uh, where they can find the link um, to the Airbus Group um, uh, webpage which then uh, allows them the link in to the details, the subscription process, uh, registering, uh, more general description about the, the contest, the, the prizes, the scoring, uh, and so forth. So the best, the best, best place is to go directly to the ICRA uh, uh, webpage. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for putting together the Airbus Shop 4 Challenge. We look forward to seeing the results at this year's ICRA. Thank you for having me, and um, I'm more than uh, excited to see the, the very interesting results from our uh, competitors. And that's all for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode and look forward to our future coverage of ECRA 2016. If you'd like to get more information about this or any of our past episodes, just visit us at robohub.org. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Airbus with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.